0: I've been using the Hammerhead Karoo 2 for the past number of weeks. I've used every bike computer on the market through the years. And anybody who listens to the podcast on the regular, you will know that I'm not exactly at peak fitness at the moment. Every other device I've used, they track what you'd expect them to track. They track heart rate, power, distance, speed. But the Hammerhead Karoo 2, it saved my bacon more times than I can count since I've gotten it. It has this really cool notification that detects climbs which are upcoming. ...and tells you how many metres you have left to hang on, to endure, to suffer to the top of that climb. This has allowed me to hang on to groups when normally I would have been dropped and dropped the parachute out the back. Plus I've plotted some new routes on all training roads with their points of interest feature... The jump from other bike computers to using the Karoo 2, it's been like going from my old Nokia 3310 phone to putting my hands on the iPhone for the first time. It's full colour and the touchscreen is very responsive. It's much more like using a smartphone than a GPS device. And you know it's a bike computer worth using when the likes of Justin Williams from Legion and Froome you have it strapped to their handlebars. For a limited time only, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Caru 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code ROADMAN at checkout to get yours today. I'm going to leave all the details for this offer in today's show notes. It's episode 513 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast and today I'm chatting with Colin O'Brady. Let's cue that Intro The big question is this How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman! Welcome back to episode 513 of the Roadman Cyclone Podcast. You're going to love today's chat. It's with Colin O'Brady. I'm going to get into giving you a little bit of his background and why it's worth your time listening to this interview in a minute. Uh, Before I jump into that, I've had a bunch of DMs that I'm working my way. I'm getting through. I made that commitment to you that I would get back to every DM and I think I'm doing pretty well. But uh, one common one I get all the time is people love the podcast and they like genuinely from a great place want to help and support the podcast. Like honestly, and it sounds cliche and that's why I am hesitant to say it at times and I've been hesitant for so long to say, but the best way you can support the podcast or the best couple of ways it's review the podcast wherever you listen to the podcast. It makes such a difference when somebody else comes along, they search cycling because we're doing so well in that category. If you go into Apple and you search cycling, we're one of the top two or three podcasts that come up alongside the likes of the Bradley Wiggins one, the move from Lance Armstrong. And we're there like second or third most weeks, which is absolutely amazing. But if you click into some of the other podcasts, they have thousands of reviews and we don't I think we've less than a hundred because I've been a little bit my Irish hesitancy to ask for for reviewers. So that is a massive thing that you can help with. So if you're listening to the podcast, go there and submit a review, say what you like about the podcast, give it a rating and encourage friends, if you can get it done off two or three accounts in your house, that's even better. You know, get it done off the missus account, get it done off the husband's account, get it done off the kid's account. You know, two or three reviews really help so much. And then the second way, so many people say, you know, I'd love to help out. Uh, I'll buy you a point. Well, you can buy a point. It's one of the things we've been running since the start of the podcast, and I mention it less uh, free, frequently in uh, recent months. But with Patreon, it's this idea of if you would see me in the city and you'd buy me a point, you can do that remotely with Patreon. And to do that, you just go to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore watch and you can buy me a point. But for me, training's been going well, Uh, I'm still tipping away, struggling to find that balance really between training's going well at the moment, but I've just had less energy for the rest of my life for for the last couple of weeks. So I'm trying to find that balance between, you know, life and well and training well and not being this counterbalance all the time. And I'm enjoying the indoor a lot more, I'm leaning into that so you can... uh, Come meet me for a virtual ride, and I figure out how to set that up over the coming months. <laughs> and we'll probably leave that until the winters get a, the light gets a bit diminished over the winter, and we're forced to indoors. But for the moment. Uh, I'm enjoying my train. It's good to be back. So today's guest it is someone called Colin O'Brady. Not a household name, not a cyclist, but a fascinating interview and one of the most fascinating interviews I've given to you guys or brought to you folks in a long, long time. Colin O'Brady's ten world records. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's an amazing TV. Uh, host He's a speaker, and he's had a world firsts for a bunch of stuff, like he crossed Antarctica solo, first person to ever do that. He recounts us with that story, first man to ever row across Drake Passage, which is an absolutely unbelievable, harrowing story, which he brings to us in this podcast as well. He's the author of a book, which I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of, and I don't know why, it just feels so cool to get an advanced copy, called The 12-Hour Walk, which speaks so centrally to something that we hold dear on this podcast, this idea of doing hard things. And that's really the focus of this podcast. It's doing hard things. So I think you're going to love it. I think you're going to be fascinated by it. And I think it's one you're going to visit over and over again when you're looking for inspiration for your own little adventures. So with that little preface said, folks, I welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast for the first time, Mr. Colin O'Brady.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited. Uh, Colin, congratulations on the book. It's a difficult thing to get out at the best times, but to write when you're in a pandemic, it must be doubly difficult.
1: Yeah, it, feel, it feels good. You know, it's, uh, it's my second book um, and uh, both have been a, a labor of love, you know, put a lot of heart and soul into the process and just really excited to share this book with the world. It feels like uh, great to have it released and As we'll talk about, I'm sure it's more than a book, you know, really has a large call to action. So I'm thinking it more as a global movement, something everyone can participate in. So it's fun to have a book that has a little bit more than just just the reading to it.
0: Uh, the podcasts, our podcast, uh, I'm not sure if you've, how often you've listened in, but it's six days a week. So it's, you know, it, it's full on in terms of jumping from one interview to the next. And I often get a lot of these cool books, which is always nice to get. And the first time I get to them, I'm always like, this is cool. The advanced reader's edition for anyone watching on the video, little stamp on the front. But a lot of times I, pick up these books and you try and do your due diligence for guests coming on but you're really picking out key chapters and you're sort of trying to wing a conversation from there that was my intention when I started this book and it just gripped me and I read the whole book cover to cover in like a day and a half it was a really nice interesting read but it's a cool story
1: awesome I'm I'm so glad to hear it yeah it's uh you know, I obviously want to engage the reader, get them excited with adventures from walking across Antarctica alone and rowing a boat across Drake Passage and being on K2 and Everest as well as some other stories from my life that are, you know, relatable. But uh, I also i am happy to hear that it's a quick read. You know, as you know, the book's called The 12-Hour Walk. And what I really want people to do is get out the door and take their own 12-hour walk. So that means <laughs> I don't want them to have to read the book for a month to get to that point. Right. So if you can read it in a day, a day and a half, uh, that's a good sign.
0: You could have called it The 12-Hour Read. <laughs> uh, Colin, journey back me. I don't want to, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to pick up copies of the book, so I don't want to totally just, you know, go through chapter by chapter and ruin the whole book for everyone. But instead, I do want to pick out key bits and talk around those. Take me back to, I think it took place in Manhattan. It's the opening chapter, if I remember. You're going up to this quite pretentious sounding penthouse to give a public speaking event. Talk to me about. That moment?
1: Yeah, you know, um, this book at, at its core is really, you know, invites people to think about, you know, what their hopes, what their dreams, what their goals are, you know, in their own life. You know, the subtitle of the book is Invest One Day, Conquer Your Mind, and Unlock Your Best Life. So I really, to me, um, one of the things that I've been most passionate about, whether that's in my public speaking, I have a, you know, nonprofit for kids, you know, public speaking with, you know, companies, things like that, is inspiring people to kind of chase their own hopes and dreams. Um, But the chapter that I start is this interesting moment from my life where I'm invited to, you know, speak um, for this kind of you know wealthy group of Wall Street guys, um, and then they kind of invite me to a dinner, uh, a smaller group of people the night before the speech, um, and it, it, there's as you know from the book just some funny things that happen. I'm just out of place. These guys are like in the nicest <laughs> tailored suits. I'm wearing a, just like I am right now, a black t-shirt and jeans, and just kind of my typical outfit. the The doorman almost doesn't want to let me up in, into the penthouse because he's too certain I'm with the catering and I'm not like an actual guest for this party. Uh, <laughs> so just kind of a funny context. But overall, what was interesting, you know, in that moment was I'm sitting around this table talking to these guys, you know, very, you know, really wealthy, very successful, um, you know, financially group of guys, and I they're asking me all these questions about, you know, do you see dead bodies when you climbed Everest? Talk to me about walking across Antarctica solo. You know, I'm talking to them about these adventures that I've had, these world records that I've set. Um, and you know I love to have a, you know not just like a one-way conversation, but have a dialogue with these guys. And so one of my favorite questions that I've asked people um, and, and asked the reader as well in this book is I say, "Well, what's your Everest? You know my dream as a kid was to climb Mount Everest. so I'm always curious like or people driving driving forest as, as a kid. And, you know, I thought in this room of guys who clearly, you know, all external appearances have had all the success in the world that they'd have, you know, an interesting conversation like, oh, I always dreamed of this or I always wanted to, like, make all this money or do this or whatever. Um, and it was just kind of this, like, awkward, quiet response. Like, no one really wanted to respond to that question. So we kind of moved on. But where I end the chapter and end that story, um, was when as i was leaving that party a guy pulls me aside you know older gentleman probably you know 75 years old something like that he kind of pulls me aside and we have a quick you know exchange and he says you know hey look I- i'm sorry none of us responded he's like but i've been thinking about your question all night and he sort of like looks at me and he says a lot without saying anything really um which is he's like i wish i had answered that question for myself sooner in my life he's like i have all the money in the world But um, he was kind of just like, I'm not sure that I ever got to the summit of my actual Everest. And he kind of reminds me of this time. He talks to me about this being a kid at summer camp on a rowboat with sort of the simplicity of childhood. And so I opened the chapter there and opened the book there really because it's about regrets. It's about getting to the end of life. Even if you have, you know succeeded in the ways that other people might find to be successful, or, you know, oh, this looks great on the outside, really listening to your own heart and saying, but but, what, what, is, what does my life want to look like? What, what does my best life look like? You know, what does the summit of my and Mount Everest look like? Um, and really, this book is a way to say, hey, whether you're on that track, this uh, this can help you get there, or whether you found yourself at any age of life, uh, late in life, middle age, you know, you know, early early 20s, just out of university, whatever that is, to say, like, Ask yourself that question because you don't want to get to the end of life. You don't want to be this regret-filled older man going, huh, maybe I should have done life a little bit differently.
0: But isn't it a brilliant – it's such a brilliant question. And I found myself pausing on that question and I rode the bike this morning on my own and I thought about that question. And if you turn off the podcast right now or if you abandon the book after one chapter – you get a lot of value from just that one question, like, what is your Everest? i pose it to the listeners now, like, what is your Mount Everest? In adventure circles, it seems obvious that Mount Everest is your Mount Everest. But when we step away from that, it's like, what is your Mount Everest? And asking it at each stage of your life. Because for me, I spent seven years in university training to be a barrister and i explain it to people like i spent seven years climbing a ladder and then when i got to the top of the ladder i realized the ladder was against the wrong wall Mm -hmm. and when i got there i was like well this doesn't this doesn't you know we we hear people saying i've made that decision based on gut and i often think we don't listen to gut enough and when i reflect on bad decisions and good decisions i've made Ones that I've made with the head have often in retrospect turned out to be bad. Once where I've listened to my gut or my soul, they just they energize me and they charge me in a different way. I lo- and I'm walking oh, I, I away love that. from law was one I of love them.
1: That, I love that analogy of of the ladder. That's so good. Uh, I've never never heard it said like that, but that that's perfect. You know, it's like you can be climbing up something or chasing some dream then you get there and you realize oh this wasn't my dream this was projected on me by my family or by society or who who knows what but you know and i applaud you for actually realizing taking that realization and being like maybe it's time to make a shift because too often people get to the top of the ladder that's against the wrong wall. And they're like, well, I guess I'm here. I, I don't want to climb back down again. You know, that's too hard to start over or shift. Um, oh, all also- I've been
0: doing is climbing ladders. So again, <laughs> I, took, I got away from that ladder, stuck another ladder against the wall and said, no, I'm going to be a pro cyclist. So got to the top of that, nailed down the contract as a pro cyclist, got there and thought oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I was like, boom, start over. And there's a great Buddhist philosophy, and it's this idea of start over. And it's, you know, I always say to people, just because you've had a, a, you know, you've scheduled a one-hour workout, and the first 45 minutes of this workout are total junk doesn't mean the next 15 minutes can't be the greatest 15 minutes of a workout you've ever put down. But on a macro level, we can apply this idea of start over. Keep picking your new Everest and go hit that Everest and realize, oh, shit, that wasn't my Everest. Maybe Everest is over here. It's something totally different.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about gut and intuition as well. Um, you know, the, as you know from reading the book, the book is really you know, broken up around 10 core chapters, each one breaking down a common limiting belief, you know, that we all have that I think holds us back. You know, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. You know, what if I fail? What if people criticize me? Um, And there's been a lot of books written about mindset, books that I am really passionate about. And at at its core, this book really is about mindset. I kind of coined this term that I've said for a long time, which is a possible mindset, which I define as An empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. And I believe that whenever anyone takes this 12-hour walk, the actual call to action, that you can unlock that possible mindset by actually going through that practice in your mind, diving deep into your mind in the silence and the solitude and the stillness of this one day. And coming out the other side stronger. But when I think that one thing that I think in a lot of sort of research or people that have talked a lot about mindset that people miss is intuition. Um, and I think it's probably the most um, underrated but most maybe most important piece of the entire sort of mental makeup. And it's a little bit hard to quantify, right? Um, but you mentioned it there where it's like when you really listen to your gut, you, you have known the answer. And there's a chapter that I write in this book that's about, you know, start the limiting belief is I don't know the answer And I I tell a a story about being on K2 in winter, a really tragic story where I I lost some friends and, um, you know, difficult story, but ultimately it it was my gut, my intuition that saved my life in that circumstance. And, you know, as I expound to the reader and I go, you know, speak more directly to the reader in that chapter, it's like, when you know, you know, like there are these big decisions in your life and it's easy to go get out the, the pros and cons list and say, you know, it's like. Uh, you know, I've been dating this person for however many years, you know, should I, should I marry them? And you're like, well, she, does, she has this, but she doesn't have this. You compare this like, you're like, no man, like, you know, the answer to that question. Like you just know, like intuitively, you know, the answer you get, you get offered some big job promotion or something like that. Maybe you've got kids, but it requires you to, you know, move your family to the other side of the country or a city that's unfamiliar. And like, I'm not saying what the right answer is, but you know, the answer, maybe that's the best thing for your family to take this job. Or maybe it's like, oh, uprooting my family, changing my community, this, that, the other thing not good. And you can go, you can kind of analysis paralysis that question, right? Should I do this, this, that, the other thing, ask a million people, but like deep down in the silence and the stillness of your own body, these big questions, we often, we do know the answer in our gut. And part of this book teaches the, the way to, for us to actually tap into that. Cause I think that is so powerful. And like I said, it quite literally saved my life in the mountains.
0: I love that expression, when there's doubt, there's no doubt. I remember I was at, I've had so many forks in the road in my life. And at one point I'd come back from, uh, finished law school, come back from being a pro cyclist, and I'd got this entrepreneurial book, and I was trying to build different businesses. And at this point I had a social media marketing agency and it it was kind of struggling to get traction and I had a manager and stuff in place. But it was at a point where I was like, okay, maybe I need to go full-time in this to drive this company and, you know, The idea of building a life of this sort of cool life of leisure where I had so many hours to ride my bike, I was thinking to myself, maybe I'll temporarily shelve this. And I chatted to my girlfriend around and she just said to me, you know, if there's doubt, there's no doubt. And I often think about that same thing. If I if there's doubt, there's no doubt. I'm going out, I'm thinking about should I go training tonight? It's raining and I'm like, there's a little bit of doubt, there's no doubt. It's what I should be doing. I'm just second guessing myself. My gut knows the answer. My gut's like, you shouldn't be going full-time in a job you don't like. Your gut is you should be going out and doing the session even though you're trying to make excuses not to. 100%. Our gut serves us so well and people just don't listen to it because it's, it's difficult to verbalize.
1: Right. And that's where I think you get into this kind of research kind of mentality, which don't get me wrong. I I love, you know, some good academic research, but it's so hard to quantify. So if you get really in your head, like you said, you kind of get into the facts. You're like, what are you talking about? It's it's a feeling. It's a, that's not like reality. And you're like, yeah, like more often than not that has steered me in the right direction. So, um,
0: we have a saying on the podcast and we even had little stickers printed out that so many audience have gotten. And it's like roadman do hard things. And, The idea of doing difficult tasks and difficult things repeatedly, why I love it. And this is a chapter that just, it resonated with me more than any chapter of a book I've probably read in the last decade. I often refer to, I use different language to explain it, but I find happiness in contrast. And on the podcast, I speak about a lot of stuff that people are like, why do you put yourself through that hardship? And on the end of the hardship, I feel it creates this sort of space of enjoyment. And without the hardship, I can't get the enjoyment. So for me, it's like, why would I try and sit in a sauna that's 58 degrees Celsius for like 90 minutes? Because when I get out the back end, it's just such a nice feeling to have a cold shower. Would I enjoy that cold shower otherwise? Why do I want to ride my bike 300 kilometers in the pouring wet in Ireland in the winter because when I got off that bike, that Netflix movie I watched with my girlfriend by the fire that night, it's going to be the greatest Netflix movie I've ever watched. Hard things create a space for enjoyment. You have a different way of explaining it on this sort of number scale, which I thought is brilliant.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is something I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and I actually... My first book that I wrote a few years ago, The Impossible First, that was really deeply about my solo crossing of Antarctica, um, you know, gets deep into that. This is sort of where I ended that book with this thought. Um, And it's something that I continue to think about long after that. And I was like, you know, this is important to me. I want to share this, which really is. So, you know, for those that don't know too much about my story, I give a little bit of background, but... um, you know, I, I crossed Antarctica solo, 54 days, something that no one in history had ever accomplished to that point. I'm out there alone, pulling a 160 kilogram sled behind <laughs> me. Um, you know, like I said, 54 days alone, deep silence, deep stillness. Uh, you know, that qualifies as two hard things. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm starving. I, I literally can't carry enough food with me to nourish myself. So I've lost, you know, I don't know how much Like, 15 kilograms, something like that. I mean, lost tons of weight. You know, bones are sticking out. Ribs are sticking out. Um, but I eventually make it to the other side um, and, and I get there and, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of praise and more just deep pride in myself of being able to do this thing that a lot of people didn't think was possible, that I honestly didn't think was possible a lot of steps of the journey. And I get to the end and I touch the other coastline of Antarctica, you know, having successfully completed this at my very last limit and it lasted my food, you know, just beat up. And I experienced this deep euphoria, just this incredible feeling of fulfillment, um, and pride. And my family's on the other end of a sat phone. It's the day after Christmas and my family's all together. And it's just like one of the highlights of my life, uh, And I started to think about, and the way I talk about this number scale is I started to think about life as a scale of one to 10, our experiences in life, you know, one being the worst day that we ever experienced. Certainly crossing Antarctica, pulling this sled, there was a lot of one days, you know, wind blowing in my face, frostbite, I'm afraid, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm alone. Um, You know, I've had all sorts of other ones, you know, I severely burned myself in a fire in Thailand when I was younger, told I was never walk again normally, you know, we've all had some low moments in our life. That's part of life. And then this 10 this actually getting to the other side of Antarctica and touching this post. I feel this euphoric 10, it's this beautiful moment. And I realize that the 10 itself, just like you said about the Netflix after riding your bike, um, or, you know, going through the, the sauna to then the cold shower, it's, I'm not feeling this 10 in spite of the one, I'm actually feeling this 10 because of the one. It's yeah. the one itself that's allowing me to fill the 10, which means I'm actually-
0: That's the bit people miss.
1: Right. Right. So what's interesting is, you know, then I get into the, the, the part that really is important to, to go deeper on, in my opinion, is what I call this zone of comfortable complacency. You know, this zone between four and six in a, in a modern society, you know, where the, the Internet is fairly accessible for most people and, you know, food and, and things like that. Not obviously there's people in this world that don't have some of the basic um, things to, to have to have that four of six of comfortable complacency. But there's certainly a lot of people that do. Right. And once you kind of have those Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs taken care of, it's easy to sit in that four and six. You know, it's like you have that job, you don't love it, you don't hate it, it's fine, it pays the bills. It's like, eh, it's a five. Like, it doesn't light you up to get you out of bed. Or... You know, you're in a relationship and you're thinking to yourself like, yeah, I'm with this person. Like we've been together for a few years. It's fine. Like, you know, we don't fight. It's not like abusive. It's not like a bad situation, but it's like, "Eh, it's just like, eh, it's fine. Like a lot of people are living within this four to six, this zone of comfortable complacency. And And I've spent a lot of time talking to people about this. And what I've found is that the reason people live there all the time is that they're so afraid of experiencing a one. So what they're saying is, but I don't want to leave this job that's a five because like, well, what what if I can't pay my bills for a couple months? Or, you know, what what if the next job is even worse? Or what if the, you know, for a little bit of time, I'm uncomfortable? Or this relationship is fine. I mean, maybe it's better than being single. You know what? I was just kind of like you bargain with yourself and you stay in that five, meaning you're hedging so hard against experiencing the one or the discomfort. But what happens to that, the counterbalance of that is you also hedge then against experiencing the tens. And so I encourage people to step outside of that zone of comfortable complacency and allow that full pendulum to swing from one to 10. You know, the peak arcs, those tens are only there because allowing yourself to feel the ones, to feel the twos, to feel the threes. That is how you get that deep sense of fulfillment, joy, love, peace, et cetera. And so this, uh, probably a good time to talk about you know at the core of this book is this call to action that invites people to take a 12-hour walk um themselves so when i was crossing an solo that's how long i pulled my sled every single day was 12 hours and at, at first when i started i didn't think there was any way i could pull my sled that far i also deleted all my music all my podcasts, etc so i was in this stillness and this silence and at first it was horrible, it was horrible. I was like, what am I doing out here? My brain is going crazy. I'm playing every trick on me, fear, doubt, etc." cetera. Uh, why the hell did you think this was a good idea? But by the end, by that moment, when I was touching that post, I found so much peace, inner peace, silence, strength. But then during COVID, a couple years after this crossing, I find myself again, sitting in my house full of anxiety, full of depression, locked in my house. I think a lot of us experience this sort of low moments in this COVID period. And I thought, when was the last time I felt actually this level of calm? And I thought, you know, it's weird because Antarctica felt like it was trying to kill me every single day. I mean, it's so hard. just you know, minus 30, minus 40 degree wind chill blowing in my face, just brutal conditions. I was like, but I found a stillness in my brain out there. So I said to my wife, "I'm in Oregon, where I, where I'm from." And I said to her, "This might sound weird, but during COVID lockdown, tomorrow I'm going to go for a walk all day, twelve hours, like I used to in Antarctica a few years ago." She's like, "Okay." So I walk out of my house, and I'm taking this taking this long walk, and my phone buzzes in my pocket, and I instinctively, you know, pull it out. Oh, who's texting me? You know, trying to check in my social media for a second. I'm like, "Wait, what am I doing?" Like, I've been then this lockdown, all I'm doing is looking at my cell phone, scrolling social media, looking at, looking at, uh, you know, zoom calling my parents, whatever that is is. I'm like, I don't need my phone right now. So I put my phone on airplane mode. So I end up taking this long 12 hour walk in stillness and silence, no podcast, no music, you know, no external stimuli alone. And I get back to my front door 12 hours later and I have regained and I have found this stillness and this calm inside my body and mind. And so I realized that, we don't actually need to go all the way to Antarctica. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm super glad that I did that personally. But that in our modern world where we just have so many inputs and so many things bouncing around in our head and in our body and our mind and our soul, like there's value to be gained by just taking one day – in your own thoughts, in stillness, and in silence. And to be clear, the 12-hour walk, you don't have to walk for 12 hours nonstop. Take as many breaks as you want. I don't care if you go for one mile or 50. It's not a race. I've had my 77-year-old mother-in-law did a 12-hour walk in stillness and silence, and her walk looked like walking one time around her block, sitting on her front porch for an hour in stillness and silence, then doing another walk around her block and doing that 12 times in a row. And so there's really no distance required in this. But it's about... Taking that time to tap into your own mind. And what you might find is in those first few hours, you might feel those ones being alone in silence, in stillness is uncomfortable for most people because we don't normally feel that. But when you get back to that front door, when you push through those challenges, when you find you tap into that intuition and they really cultivate that possible mindset, you keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I've had so many people do this walk at this point. People get back to their front door feeling a 10. They have they are been ripped out of the zone of comfortable complacency and have found this high peak arc of it. So this book at its core is, is full of wisdom, full of getting over, limiting beliefs, mindset, et cetera. But at its very core, it's a simple call to action to say, hey, if you're feeling stuck in your life, if you're at a crossroads, if you're having a hard time or just want the extra edge your life professionally, personally, et cetera, I have a one-day prescription for you that will change your life. Take a day, put it on your calendar, put your phone on airplane mode and walk alone in silence for 12 hours you'll be amazed at how you feel like
0: do you notice a long tradition in this type of stuff this is like all the way back stoics used to like from aristotle to seneca they'd create this hardship for themselves where aristotle'd sleep on a concrete floor and just to so it'd keep them humble and it'd keep them eager and the same seneca i think spent periods homeless like living in total like destitute just to keep them with a you know I suppose an appreciation for the material things that he had in his life. But there's also a Japanese one that dates back. I'd say it even predates that. And it's the idea of a masogi. And they drop masogis in quarterly. They're these epic challenges. And the idea of a masogi is it must have a 50% chance of failure. So for me, a masogi like riding the bike 12 hours isn't a masogi. For me, it's going to suck riding the bike for 12 hours because my ass is going to hurt. I'm going to be starving. It's a long time on your own. But I have like a 95%, 99% chance of doing it. But maybe like a 12-hour unsupported hike across the mountains, I have a 50, 50 chance of winning or losing but what I wondered when I read your prescription of the 12-hour walk this is post you having this crazy battle in Antarctica but with yourself the elements and one of your competitors Captain Rudd who was there trying to be the first man as well so this what I'm trying to get is in my life I've benchmarked these experiences so I have I can remember my coldest ever day on the bike and it was a race uh, north can- to Toronto it went to you know well into sub zero temperatures. I was poorly dressed, lost function in my fingers. It was a horrible day, yeah, so when I think back to cold days I have on the bike now, I benchmark them against that. so I say, okay, that day was a one. This day is cold and it's pretty bad and a borderline hypothermia, but it's still a two. it's still a two and a half. When you went out the door for that twelve hour walk, it's a walk around suburbia like that can't be a one for you given that you've pushed the sled so given that it's not a one can you still hit the 10 of euphoria off the other end of this
1: yeah so it's interesting and it's a great question you know you obviously you know you and i both come from endurance sporting background you know i was a professional triathlete for a number of years you you've probably logged more miles uh, on your bike than me but we've both spent some time in the saddle time time you know moving our bodies in this way um and what's interesting to me about the twelve-hour walk itself is, of course, there's a physical component to it. You know, it's, you know, walking for twelve hours for most people, um, you're, you're going to get tired. You're going to your, your legs are going to get tired. You're going to get hungry. <laughs> like you said, it's a long day. Um, but what I come to realize more than anything is, it's and I say this in the book it really is an exercise of the mind, this specific thing, which is, this is different than it. You know, if I'm talking to an ultra marathoner, who's like, well, you know, I've run a hundred miles, I've done all these big runs, whatever. I'm like, awesome. Like, that's great. This is, this is not that this is a different thing than that. This is an intentional space in your mind. It's the silence. It's the solitude. It's the quiet. It's the intentional space of that. And so I, I am similar to you where I benchmark these sort of experiences, um, you know for me being severely burned a fire having no skin on the lower half of my body yeah, it's a bad know, day I'm, out you know that's a bad real bad day out Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm, uh, you know, climbing mountains or it's cold or it's freezing or I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm always like, but I felt worse. Like I've been in a hospital bed, looked down at blood, you know, (laughs) screaming off my legs being like, you'll never walk again, Norman. I'm like, okay, well I'm out here, you know, maybe I'm up on ever some K2 or something like that. It's a brutal, you know, day, really challenging. I'm exhausted. I'm afraid, whatever. I'm still like, I felt worse. So I understand that the 12 hour walk is just, to me is a little bit different than that. Um, just, it's not an apples to apples comparison. The challenge really is in the midst of all the to-dos, in the midst of all the, you know, let me check my phone, let me this, whatever, to actually just set the time aside to be in stillness and in silence. And one of the biggest interesting for me, so in my body, about uh, 10, 11 years ago, I was introduced to Vipassana meditation. So a friend of mine, when I was racing triathlon professionally, said to me, what do you do for your mind, your mental game? And I was like, oh, you know, I do some visualization. She's like, wait a second you train your body every single day to be a professional athlete, but you don't have like a really specific mental practice. And I kind of felt like I got caught with my pants down. And she was like, I was like, (laughs) well, what do you recommend? And she's like, well, I don't know that much about sports. She's like, but something that's helped me, and this woman was like, you know, not like a coach or something, it's just my friend's wife. She said, "Um, I've done this thing called Vipassana meditation. And I was like, what is it? She goes, it's 10 days in silence, no reading, no writing, no eye contact, sitting still. It's hardcore. And I was like, as an athlete, you know, I'm like, I've done all these hardcore things. I, you know, I know how to push my body. I know how to this. And I was like, oh shit. Like I realized the second she said it, like she had thrown down for me the real gauntlet. So for just like you said, you can get on your bike and ride for 12 hours. It's going to be a long day. You're going to be hungry at the end. We're like, you know, you know you can do it. You know, and I and I know that self about my body, right? But it was a question of like, but can you go into the mind? Can you actually, without distraction, go deep in the mind? And those 10 days of silence that I did that year back in 2011 was the first time I did that. I've done it multiple times since. I gained so much from that. Now, there's no way I could have walked across Antarctica solo had I not... um, you know, spend that time in silence and stillness in my own mind, not moving, not moving was the hard part for me as the athlete, the 12 hour walk itself. Um, and what I love about it is it really meets people where they're at. So if people are coming from a deep athletic background and they have like, you know, an amazing endurance capacity, the walking itself, the 12 hours of the actual movement of their body might not be the most difficult part about it, but I'm willing to bet it's not mental
0: this. components. I think
1: it's the mental component. It's the stillness and the silence, whereas the other can be, cause even well. on
0: a bike ride, you know, I, I, you probably the same when you're trying to triathlon or some of these you know preparation events for your big epics you're you're distracted quite a lot of the time you're listening to podcasts oh, you're yeah. out with training partners you're in totally. traffic you know it's all distracting
1: yeah 100 percent. and so that that's the part about the 12-hour walk that really is like because i've had you know i've asked a lot of people this question i've said look in in your life in your adult life let's say that and whatever last decade what's the what's the longest you've spent in silence by yourself? And I'm like, I'll define that for you. Uh, which is sleeping doesn't count. Every time you look at your phone, the clock resets every time, (laughs) uh, you know, you turn on the TV or you got podcasts or music in the background, the clock resets every time someone else walks in the room, the clock resets like you get. So like what's the longest amount of time you've actually spent in this stillness and silence. Um, and, like I've, I've I, you know, in research for this book, I've asked hundreds of people this question. The average answer when people are honest is like 30 minutes, you know, an hour. It's air, yeah.
0: I was going to yeah. say maybe an hour max, yeah. like.
1: Right. And so talk about doing something different outside the comfort zone. It's a simple, the 12 hour walk is simple. You could describe it in a sentence. It's walk outside your house, put your airplane on airplane mode, and stay out there for 12 hours. That's the whole thing. Right. But. That is so far outside of the norm for almost everyone, myself included. I mean, obviously, I've done some things that are that are pretty out far out there. But on a normal day, that's way outside of just my normal day, obviously. And so it's again, it's it's invitation to break free of your routine, break free of something you've never done. And what you discover in your mind is really interesting. When that, when that stillness, when that quiet, when that, when that taps in, at first it's very uncomfortable for most people. Those first hours, you're like, "This is going to be the longest day of my life. Like, this is horrible." But as the steps go on, people end up in these flows. People find these things that they kind of in the corners of their brain, or answer questions, or work through problems. Um, all these limiting beliefs that I talk about start to kind of fade away. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I'm afraid to fail. I'm at this. And it really is amazing what that stillness and silence can do, particularly in a noisy world that we all live in.
0: And I'm sure you're pulling stuff from each experience, whether it's a 12-hour walk, whether it's the Captain Road going across the Antarctic. You're pulling stuff from each of those experiences that's making the next experience possible. Like, talk to me about the Drake crossing, the great Drake passage. That was, it's an epic chapter. And just, it sounds like one of these kick-ass stories that (laughs) I was... I have to say, I was not, I, I like, I like to think I enjoy a bit of hardship, but I was not that envious of that story in those conditions.
1: Yeah. Um, I would say one last thing, cause I, it's important to as a finishing note on the walk, uh, and tell you all about the Drake. Cause it was an epic adventure. Um, but also very, the most uncomfortable I've probably ever been in my life. Um, <laughs> But the 12-hour walk is is really meant to be done anywhere. I just want to make sure that's understood. You can walk out your front door. If there's other people walking past you, there's cars driving past, that doesn't negate your silence. The silence is your own sort of personal commitment to that. So people ask me, oh, but I live in New York City. Or I live in this big city. It's like, absolutely. You can do the 12-hour walk right out your front door. You just got to
0: blank any of your friends, you see. You just got to exactly. walk straight to past them, exactly. game face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um so th- that's an important thing. It's not like you gotta wait to be on vacation in some obscure trail in the middle of nowhere. I mean, if you wanna do that, cool. But I actually find right out your front door is the most powerful. Um, you know, even if there's some ambient city noise or whatnot. But the Would, Drake Pass- in general,
0: I I, I want to get onto the drag passage, but just to follow up on that, in, in general, I think that's just great advice for any sort of sporting or academic or other endeavor. It's like start right now with the tools you have, like the runners that you have are the runners you need you don't need to save up to get the new bike you don't need to save up to get the new bench press the gym membership it's like get started now and that's part of the story as well it's like this idea of just creating motion with shit tools and like getting to some sort of mini milestone that's the bit you look back on with such pride it's when you have all the cool stuff like when i was getting started in the sport in cycling I was like scraping together all parts for bikes. I like falsified a bank loan application to buy some parts <laughs> for bikes, and I often thought like to myself, I'd love to get to a place where I just have like a room with bikes hanging and I can pull down, you know, my dream bike for whatever terrain I'm on. And honestly, like now that I'm at that place where I've got all these bikes, it's like fuck it, I wish I was that kid again, scraping for parts and trying to pull it all together. So it's important to just get started, whether it's with the walk or with the bike ride. Absolutely. this drake passage story is absolutely epic Dog. so <laughs> frame it for people that don't know as to what the drake passage is
1: yeah so after my solo antarctic crossing um i i got it back in my head that i wanted to go back to antarctica but in the completely opposite way so when i was walking across obviously i was in the interior um i didn't see much of the actual you know the water the coastline. Um, So I got into my head with a team of others to see if we could be the first people in history to cross the Drake Passage in a rowboat. So the Drake Passage is the body of water between the southern tip of South America um, and Antarctica. It's roughly, you know, 750 miles, something like that. And it is widely known as the most rough, notorious, hardcore stretch of ocean uh, in the world. You know, there's all sorts of historical, uh, you know, sea rec- or crashes and wrecks um, that have happened out there. But as of recently, I mean, within the last 10 years, a cruise ship sunk in the Drake Passage, meaning like it's not just like, oh, a 100 years ago, you know, boats would sink out here. It's like recent times, big ass <laughs> boats have sunk in this water. And it is. Brutal. I YouTubed and
0: it looks grim.
1: <laughs> um, so, you know, we're, we're looking at you know, 40 foot, you know, 10, 15 meter swells. Um, we're in a tiny 28 foot rowboat, which has no motor, no sail, just some, some oars. Um, it's open hole. So the, the waves are crashing over our head every single day. I mean, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. Um, there's a team of six of us. Um, we would row three minute, three men on three men off for 90 minute segments. So literally 12 hours or 24 hours a day, the boat was in motion, 90 minutes on, 90 minutes off, 90 minutes on, 90 minutes off, um, nonstop motion. Because if we stopped rowing the boat, basically the current and the swells were so big, it would just push off like hundreds of miles off course. And we might miss, uh, Antarctica entirely. And the water is uh basically right at freezing you know it's you know one celsius you know 0.5 celsius kind of thing just enough to not be ice but there's icebergs um in the water which is intense in itself but one of the most and you know, i talk about this a little bit in the book of just the insanity of this row was There were times, of course, there were storms, there were swells that were so big and so gnarly that we couldn't row against it. You know, the the ocean is just so violent. Um, You know, the storms and swells, you know, kicked up 40 feet or whatever pushing against us. At some point, you just can't go anymore. So the only thing to do is to try to not get blown wildly off course. And so we had this thing called a sea anchor which is basically a massive parachute that we had on the boat and we would throw the parachute um overboard and what that would do is it would inflate underwater um, and it essentially tries to hold you in place like it kind of it doesn't really anchor you but it may instead of maybe if you read drifting you know 10 knots back this would stop you and you drift only one knot back or something like that slowing you down essentially and so that's what we would do uh, in these massive storms sometimes these storms would last you know 24 hours or longer and the boat was actually only built to have four people on it, two people rowing, two people resting in these tiny little cabins. But we, need, we, we put six on the boat because we needed extra manpower because the ocean was so rough. But what would happen is when the sea anchor was out and no one could row, imagine a one man cabin. Some of these cabins are so small that if I'm in there by myself, like I'm sitting in a fetal position, basically just like wrapped in a tiny little ball. It's like being in the, in the boot of a car. And now all of a sudden we got to fit six guys in two of these holds. (laughs) <laughs> and there's forty foot swells outside throwing around your tiny little rowboat. So we I mean, we spent you know days inside, literally like imagine you know obviously everyone there was like these fit you know strong you know guys being you know, able do this rowboat, and we're you know drenched, sleep deprived, freezing cold, salt water, haven't showered in however long, and now we're like lying on top of each other in this like crazy spoon like arm. It was and getting bodies. very
0: broke back mountain it there for a while. It was
1: very mountain in there, you know, wrapped around each other. And, um, you know, it was and just, and also imagine it's not just like, it's one thing to be in a tight little space, you know, with your body wrapped around a, a big sweaty, you know, guy. Uh, but at the same time, we're just getting violently thrown around. So we're getting tossed and turned and heads are smacking into the wall. I mean, it's as brutal as you possibly can get. And it's not like you're in this situation and it's like, okay, this would be like the worst 10 minutes of my life. But you're like, how long is the storm gonna last? Twenty five hours? Okay, like buckle up, like try to, you know, try to go to sleep, try to whatever. I mean, the most uncomfortable situation. But I will say, as we finally got to the shores of Antarctica and we ultimately were successful, there's a the Discovery Channel did a big documentary about this. So if anyone's interested, there's a Discovery Channel feature length documentary called The Impossible Row. You can get it on Discovery Plus, stream it. Um, but as we get to the shores of Antarctica. There's penguins jumping off of icebergs. There's humpback wells beside the the, the boat. Um, Antarctica, the coastline, is just teeming with life, uh, unlike the interior when I was walking across. And again, I reflect on that ones and tens. You know, if, if you were in a beautiful luxury cruise ship that took you across Drake Passage, that's how most people see Antarctica. Don't get me wrong. I think that's an incredible experience. You get to Antarctica and you're like, wow, this is epic. You know, they made that to seven or an eight. I mean, it's all time. It's so beautiful. It's pristine. You know, the the wildlife is there, whatever. I'll tell you what, you get across there after, you know, hugging your buddy in a cabin, getting bashed around inside of a storm for, you know, however long and rowing your boat yourself across Drake Passage. That is that's the ten of all tens. When we sat foot on Antarctica, the six of us just arm in arm were just elated beyond belief. It was just an incredible experience to push through that hardship, push through that discomfort and find And you made a bro pack
0: to point. never speak of the erection you got when you were a spoon in your buddy.
1: Exactly, exactly,
0: of course. <laughs> Uh, there's a quote I love and it's quite relevant at the moment. Uh, in cycling we have the, the biggest race in the world is the Tour de France and the, the biggest channel that covers it is Eurosport. And the female anchor her name's Orla Shenwa and she's been getting a lot of abuse from sort of you know the keyboard warrior faceless trolls mainly because she's a girl. And one of the topics or one of the limiting beliefs that you try and knock over is I'm afraid of what people say and when I was reading this chapter, I was struck by that Roosevelt quote, and I was just Googling it before we went on air. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually... Stru- "...strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, to great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring gallantly, so his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat." I love that quote. And that quote is from an era when we didn't have social media. We didn't have keyboard warriors. We didn't have trolls. It's so amplified at the moment. People are afraid to take on these epic tasks because they're afraid of judgment from mainly faceless, nameless people who are afraid to take action themselves and afraid to be the hero in their own story. How do we defeat that limiting belief?
1: Yeah. You know, it is, it's, it's, it's amazing how crippling, um, that can be for a lot of people. And certainly I've dealt with that limiting belief myself of like, oh, what are people going to think? You know, what if I fail, whatever, but what I've come to realize, um, you know, to me, they're intertwined, you know, the, the fear of criticism and the fear of failure. Um, and I write about both of them in the book, both of those limiting beliefs, um, is first of all, I think there, and then the reason I put the Roosevelt quote in the book, I just love, I love the entire quote, but the last line is so strong to me with those cold or timid souls that neither know victory nor yeah. defeat, you know, that that's back in that four and six range, right? Like that's back in that life of not allowing to have some setbacks, you know, just being like, oh, well, I just sat here comfortably in my house and I didn't really try anything. and I criticize other people who actually did things. It's interesting. Um, you know, when I completed my solo crossing of Antarctica, um, well, a couple of things. One, I named that project The Impossible First um, for the f- explicit fact of I actually thought this might be impossible. Like people were like, yo, this is impossible. There's no way you can bring enough food with you. It's not going to work. You know, people had attempted it previous to me, a guy had died trying. Another guy had gotten evacuated because um, he ran out of food and supplies. And these are guys who are really, really renowned polar explorers. I said, this is impossible. And I said, yeah, I'm going to call it the impossible first. Not because I'm like trying to say, oh, I'm so great. You know, let me prove to you that the impossible is possible. Actually saying like, this might be impossible. I might fail and your criticism might be right. But I think I'm still going to learn something by attempting to do it.
0: Yeah. And even at that, like, so the idea, it's almost how we define success. Do we define success as completing these epic adventures? Because completing the epic adventure It's not the totality of the experience. The totality of the experience is the actual experiential part of it, the the journey to completing the experience. Like, if you don't finish the Drake passage and you guys get rescued at the very end, does that make the whole thing fruitless? No, absolutely not. You still got like 95 or 99% of the benefit out of it. the people that will give you that criticism they're defining success very narrowly as you have to get to the very end like you fail to qualify for the olympics and i've been that soldier as well it's like does that make the whole process before that totally valueless absolutely not
1: totally yeah and it's all you know and sometimes you need to be reminded by other people and sometimes you have it inside yourself i've had both moments of strength and weakness, right? The first day I was in Antarctica pulling my sled, I could barely pull my sled. And I actually started crying and the tears, they froze to my <laughs> face That's because that, it's so cold. I started crying. I'm like, I'm pathetic. I, I, I just took all these interviews and told people I'm going to try to cross Antarctica. And I, on the first day, thought I couldn't pull my sled. I mean, it, I, it's just the most horrible feeling. And I called my wife from my satellite phone um, and she reminded me, she goes, okay, today's a bad day regroup tomorrow and ultimately kind of chip away at it which is what i did but one of the things she said to remind me she goes because i said to her but i just took these interviews and it's on the front page of the new york times right now this crossing and what if i have to give up i can't even pull my sled it's so people are going to talk so much shit about me and i'm going to be so criticized and she's like you're in antarctica right now alone like you <laughs> actually fucking did it like you are out here you know the point being of like So what, would you have rather have just not even gotten dropped off or not even tried to take the first steps or not even tried to pull your sled? Obviously, I'm grateful that I figured out how to pull my sled and I'm grateful that I made it to the other side, whatever. But her point in that moment was, there's a bunch of people who said, one day I might go to Antarctica, one day, whatever, but they're sitting at their house. You are freezing your ass off with frozen tears on your face, and it sucks right now, but you are there. You are actually there experiencing that. So don't let somebody, like you said, the keyboard warrior sitting behind their desk somewhere in their comfortable you know, house you know, give you shit. But then what was interesting for me and something that took me a little while to think about and process was... Then I completed the journey. So all these people criticized me at the front. Oh, this is never going to work. It's not going to work. You know, it's going to be shit. You know, he's never going to be able to pull this off. He's not experienced enough. Captain Rudd's stronger than, you know, all the things, right? And then I I guess, you know... Uh, Captain
0: Rudd's a cool name, by the way. Yeah, he's... When, when I heard Captain Rudd, I was like, this dude's bad ass. <laughs> he's uh, like a Bond villain.
1: Uh, so then I... So then I, then I complete it, right? I become the first. I, I, I win the head-to-head race against Red, but also just the first person in history to complete this crossing. And I think, well, I've silenced all the critics. You know, the critics that saw this was impossible or we couldn't do it, like I proved them wrong. But then the funniest thing about criticism or these keyboard warriors or whatever, you know, trolls or whatever you want to call it, or this, the human nature, the, the times that we live in is this whole other crop of people all of a sudden come out of the woodwork and they're like... Oh, that crossing actually wasn't that hard. Or he didn't. The the route he took was this or that. Um, it 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 just basically it's funny, man. Like, and at first I was like, you know, my feelings were I'm like, wait a second. All you guys talk shit about me before I did this. Then I did the thing, and now you're finding something else to talk shit about. But what I've come to realize with criticism is interesting. Is rarely do you find that the people that are criticizing you have achieved more than you or in a yeah. place in their life where they're coming from happiness. And so what I try to reflect that back on is, and rather than kind of get up in arms or go point for point or criticize, whatever, I just try to shine, shine love back on that. And go, Oh man, like you must be happy. Like for you to be sitting here, like talking shit about, I walked by myself across Antarctica and you're like trying to find fault in that. Like, All right, man, like you must be having a bad day, right? Like the
0: the good guys are just too busy hustling, they're doing their own shit. They just haven't got time to criticize you, they're planning the next trip
1: (laughs) totally. People that are doing badass shit are just out there doing badass shit. When you, you know, game recognize the game, you see someone else do something amazing, you're like, Yeah, good job, man, that's freaking cool because you respect the journey. The people that are sitting there criticizing, like you said, are those cold and timid souls from, but that's a journey,
0: isn't it? Because I struggled with that at the start of the podcast and I almost abandoned the podcast. I got, you know, such hate on some episodes just because. Because I didn't sit on the fence and stuff, because I had an opinion on stuff. And anytime you have an opinion and you don't sit totally on the fence, you could get absolutely hammered by these, you know, the cold and timid souls as you call them. And it is a journey of I don't know if it's maturity or if it's just it's just reps, it's just exposure to being in the public eye. But the bigger your platform is, the more you get it. But now honestly, I don't even click into my Twitter DMs or my Instagram DMs anymore.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a funny thing. And, I, and in the book, in the chapter that's about criticism specifically, you know, I, I tell a few different stories and anecdotes. But one of the things that I, I, I talk about is I had this intuition, this gut to quit my job, kind of a, 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 a I don't know, I guess a more secure life to go race triathlon professionally. And I won't get into all the details of the story, but I tell my grandmother this and she tells me, that's a terrible idea what are you thinking about you've got this secure future and this good job you're gonna go like you know live on your buddy's couch and like race your bike like that's the worst idea ever and so criticism of course um, and I break down the different kind of types of criticism a little bit for people to think about the one that we talked about at the top of this which affects a lot of us you know is this uh, these keyboard warriors these random people criticizing on the internet and I go as hard as it is to do this that one's easy that one's actually easy if some idiot on the internet is criticizing you in your Instagram comments, like just ignore, like, it's just, it's, it's like, they don't know you, they're a random person, whatever. But then in the instance of my grandmother quote unquote criticizing me, she was actually trying to give me her best advice, right? And my grandmother's given me all sorts of good advice throughout my life. And in this- Intention
0: matters, so I think people do miss that.
1: Right, in this moment, she actually was saying, don't quit your job, Colin, like, you know, you got a good future in front of you, you know, this job pays well, you can, you know, you, you know it's a good life for yourself. Um, and in the end, I went against her or against her vice. I did quit my job. I did follow this path. I wouldn't be sitting here with 10 world records and have done well for myself financially over time, whatever, if I had it, if I had listened to her advice, but it doesn't mean her advice in that moment or her criticism was bad. It's just that you need to be discerning about who to listen to. Meaning if you're listening to every single person in your life who gives you advice or criticism, whatever, you're going to end up like that old man in, in the next to the elevator in Manhattan, living somebody else's life. Do, doing the, all of the things to please all of the other people, so as not to ever get criticism from anyone else. So you need to be discerning about that. But you also need to be discerning to say, you know, in, in this topic, you would be remiss, or I would be remiss, to not mention. Sometimes people do have good pieces of advice, or their criticism is worth taking. You know, also framed in the word of feedback, where someone's like, "Yeah, what about trying it this way? Or what about thinking about this?" I mean, my. You know, I wrote this book, I've written my two books, but the books are better because other people read them and gave me feedback on the storytelling or the grammar or the punctuation or this or that. So to say criticism as a large topic is it's important to not have the limiting belief of I'm not going to try to do things in my life because people might criticize me every single person that you know, you know, people you listen to on podcasts or people you admire or, you know, whoever that is in your life, people who have done exceptional things, every single person who has done something extraordinary in this world has received a ton of criticism. That's actually part of the deal because they have (laughs) stepped outside of the norm. They have actually pushed themselves to do something. To your point, you've actually had an opinion on your own podcast and people are like, how dare you say this? You're like, well, you know what? I'm expressing my beliefs, my values. Um, and so the goal of life is not to get to the end of it, having nobody ever criticize you. That said, the goal is also not to just go out of your way to piss everyone off and be contrarian in every single moment. So there is this balance between that, but the limiting belief of, well, what if people criticize me? You know what? I shouldn't do that. The, the second that that comes up in your mind, that's where you say. That's where your intuition knows. No, I should do this. I should do this
0: just to finish up on this one, Colin, because it's something that I was recently asked and I don't know the answer to it. And... It's about action taking. And you're somebody who I see as you take action, you take action, you take action. Maybe from the outside, there's less procrastination than the internal dialogue you have. But we have this movement in cycling at the moment. It's gravel pro. And you're seeing a lot of ex-pro cyclists moving into a gravel calendar. So I was approached with the idea to start and become a gravel pro next year, which would give me, I've been retired from pro cycling quite a few years. So it would have given me that six month period to get in shape and get back into it. But I was like, you know what, I hate this idea of mañana, tomorrow. I'm like, no, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna dive just in now and it'll be funnier story for the listeners because they're gonna get me they're gonna listen <laughs> to me getting absolutely chewed up in the early pro races and just having the worst horrible experiences as I race in Iceland across, you know, volcanoes and just getting hammered from you know, from the restaurant and drinking wine to go on to do this. It's gonna be, you know, brutal stuff. But I got a question going, like, how did you know to just take action on it instantly and i I didn't know how to answer i was like i don't know some things i just i never seem to just procrastinate on stuff like that i'm just like no this feels good it's a good opportunity let's just do it now is there a way to you know answer that question for that listener because i hadn't got a way to actually articulate how he moves past this discomfort procrastination insecurity to take action
1: yeah no I, i think it's a great question to me when I think about that, what I think about is incremental steps. So it was, we started at the top of this podcast talking about what's your Everest, you know, for me, like I said, let's just use it as Everest. Oh my God, I wanna climb Mount Everest one day. You know, I'm a kid. And you look it up, you know, quick research will show, well, that's ridiculously expensive and dangerous and hard and the tallest mountain in the world and whatever. Big goals like that are for you. You know, I want to get back in the pro peloton or something like that. Like that's a massive goal. And you, you know that the moment that you're sitting in, you don't have the fitness to do this. I, I know the moment of childhood that I look up, you know, research Mount Everest, know like, well, I can't go do that tomorrow. And because you can't do it immediately, it's easy to be like, well, I guess I'm not ready. As you said, mañana, manana. I'll start on that. I'll start on that later. But what I like to ask people is I say, but what's one thing you can do today, tomorrow, immediately? that can be an incremental step toward getting there, right? Like what, what is that? And I have for a long time have actually sent my, since my first ever summit in 2016, I've carried this little rock that I took from the summit of Mount Everest around in my pocket. And the reason I carry the rock with me is a reminder that even Mount Everest climbing Mount Everest, it's basically a bunch of tiny little rocks stacked on, stacked on top of each other. For me, it's a metaphor for the little, the middle incremental steps taken along the way. And so rather than being like it, it these big goals sometimes feel like well if i can't succeed at it tomorrow where i don't have the fitness this i shouldn't even start and begin trying but actually getting to the those mountaintops reaching the summit of your own everest actually required you to take a bunch of tiny little steps and so it's like you know you say hey i want to start this business one day you know in this field it's like okay you're probably not going to start the business tomorrow you're certainly not going to be selling your product tomorrow but like Today, can you read one blog post about something around the subject matter that might teach you one, one percent of something about this? Like, that is where I tell people. It's like, the procrastination I think comes from the the desire to have the immediate instantaneous reward or to get you know have be like, well if I'm not gonna have it all right now, I shouldn't do any of it. You know, it's kind of like the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. But it's like, no, what is the small little thing you can do? And what ends up happening is those little rocks, those stack to the sum of your mount efforts. It's not the huge, massive push that you put, it's like the day by day by day consistency.
0: It's like win the next 60 seconds. Like what's cool. the action I can take right now? Uh, Colin, I absolutely love this chat. The book, it's brilliant. highly recommended. The 12-hour walk, invest one day, conquer your mind and unlock your best life. I'm going to throw a link to it in today's show notes and I will link up all Colin's website, social and other fascinating stuff so you can check out his next adventure. Colin, it has been a pleasure, my friends. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. This podcast really wouldn't be possible without our amazing listeners who have contributed to the running of this podcast since its inception over on Patreon. So thank you for everybody that has subscribed over there. You make this podcast possible. If you haven't subscribed yet, it takes about 60 seconds and it really keeps this show on the road. So you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh buy me the price of a pint of beer once per month it's not a lot to ask if you're getting value from the show this works out at less than 25 cents per episode so go to patreon.com forward slash anthony underscore wulch and as always on anything i mention on the show the link is in the show notes